Hey, folks. I'm really glad to be here, um, having this opportunity to, to talk about theology and the church. And um, yeah, I just checked the weather. I think it's snowing in Chicago. So keep things in perspective. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Nick already mentioned we're going to talk about the church and theology. Um, but as we do this and kick it off with the first slide, just kind of an introduction. Ecclesiology is the study of the church, and you've been already working through various systematic theologies, doctrines, in the statement of faith. And um, when you think about studying each one of these, it's amazing how significant it is that we have to work at the system, systematizing it, the, the, the harmony of systematic theology. That it's not just taking a topic and looking at Scripture and seeing its consistency from cover to cover, but it's taking all those topics, doctrine and doctors, and making sure all of those are consistent in harmony with one another. That takes a little bit of work. And so to have these theological conferences that, that Rachel and Tammy are part of, and then you're doing this class through these two semesters, um, I commend you that you're willing to wrestle with and, and understand Scripture at a much deeper level. So, so let's just hop into this and that ecclesiology, again, the study of the church. But this one concept that I want to leave you, because there's so much to say, but if you leave with one nugget and how in studying these doctrines and how they originate from God, they really reflect aspects of God. And the more we study, the more we're going to learn about God and who He is, what He does, why He does it, and we understand ourselves because... You know, we're created in His image. And so, I want you to be really understanding what the church is, um, the nature of it, but really how it reflects aspects of God. Um, so, let's go on, and I'm just going to read the statement that's in your book. And we believe that the true church comprises of all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should comprise only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. And that's Article 7. So tonight, next slide, um, we're basically just going to talk about certain aspects that describe the church. We're going to talk about the nature of the church, the marks of a true church, and these terms purity and unity of the true church. And then next week, you get Rachel, and she's going to go through the four characteristics of the church, as well as the significance for the church to observe the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So let's go ahead and just start with the nature of the church. And these go a little bit broad, and they get specific as we go on. And so just even understanding this word, uh, the definition, the church is the community of all true believers of all time. So just simple, the church, all true believers of all time. That's the simplest definition of the church. 
And this word, ecclesia, comes from, this one comes from Matthew 16, and where Jesus is talking about, I will build my church, this grouping, this gathering of people. And throughout Scripture, he talks about this gathering or assembling or a congregation. And these Scriptures in Deuteronomy is where God is talking to Moses. And he says, gather the people to me. And there's a lot of Scripture to talk on and picture that. And then in Acts, it's a reference that this congregation in the wilderness, the Old Testament, are just other words of this gathering of people. And as I thought about it, when you think about creation on, how many times does he use different forms of gathering of people really to represent who God is, the Trinity, in this oneness, this gathering, this perfect harmony of that we see within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you look at Adam, and then eventually God's going to introduce him to Eve, and the two become one. They have children, have a family. Later on, he rescues the family of Noah. And later on, he tells Abraham he's going to be the father of many families among families among families, turn into tribes, turn into a nation. And then later on, after Jesus comes, he opens up salvation, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. And then later on in Scripture, he talks about that eventually He's going to come in the clouds like he ascended, and he's going to gather up both the living and the dead and to be with them for all of eternity. So you see this theme all through Scripture of gathering of people that belong to him. And I just think that's exciting that we are part of this ongoing story of the gathering of believers that follow him. So let's move on and... And talk about some of these words that you may see in literature, you may hear from uh, preachers and teachers. And one of these is that the church is, is invisible yet visible. And basically what that really means is that the invisible church is really from God's perspective. God is this infinite, limitless being that he really sees who's really part of this church, that is of his own. And the shepherd knows what sheep are in his flock. And he's not going to get fooled. Um, 2 Timothy, it says, the Lord knows who are his. But a little bit of a contrast is that the visible church is really from our perspective as people. And we don't quite have that same kind of perspective. We're limited in a lot of ways. And I think we need to be careful in some of our wording, our statements about who's in and who's out of the church. Um, even though it says, like in Matthews, beware of false prophets that come in sheep's clothing, it's only to say is that there's a warning that maybe we can be kind of deceived or we really don't know. We don't have x-ray vision. It's not always crystal clear. And so to be careful in some of our statements, you may have heard people going, well, you know, because that person did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. Man, there's no evidence that there's salvation. He, he must not be saved. We've all heard people kind of mention that. Well, maybe, maybe not. Or you may have heard testimonies of people where they've grown up in the church. They've done everything right. Nothing wrong. And then all of a sudden they, just, they tell that, well, 
all this time, I really never had a conversation with Jesus and trusted in him for salvation. So how much do we really know from our perspective? And a lot of times we need to leave that with God from his perspective. But only to say is the truth is really only known by him. We see what we see, but he sees what the true church in entirety is. So let's move on. A couple other terms that you may see. The church is local and universal. And the church can consist of believers, true believers, really of any size. And throughout Scripture, we, we see people gather within a house. Or they may gather in a city, um, a region, a nation, or worldwide. You know, we've got books written to um, the church at Philippi, uh, the church at Ephesus, that, you know, a city that represents this, this epistle that was written. So a lot of times you may hear about these two words, the big C and the little C. Big C church, little C church. Now, these aren't biblical terms, but they do help represent maybe a context of what somebody's talking about, of who they're trying to address. And the big C church is more of this universal church of true believers. Now, sometimes it's used in the context of more of the present moment, that as I'm praying or reading Scripture, I know that millions of other people around the world at this moment are doing the same, and I'm part of that universal church around the world. There's other contexts where we use the universal church as saying that we're talking about all believers of all time, past, present, and future, to represent an entirety of all believers, some that have come before and some that will come afterwards. So these are just part of that. And then the little C church, as we say, the local church, is, is people that choose to gather together and that I'm part of Do City Church, that I choose to be part of this gathering, and I call this my home church. This is my family that I invest in. That's how we use that kind of terminology, more local. Um, as we move on to the next slide, here's another way of, that Scripture uses these object lessons to describe aspects of the church. These are great teaching tools throughout the Scriptures, metaphors, common objects, common experiences that teach, again, various aspects or concepts. Now, I have a note up there. Be careful with a metaphor that you don't push any metaphor too far in thinking that it's supposed to encompass all things about that topic. It's in context that it's, it's emphasizing this or that, not something in entirety. Here are just a couple of them. Um, some of these you are very familiar with because we use them a lot to describe this thing that we're all part of. The first one is the bride. I'm just going to read some of these, not all of them, just, just a couple of them. Because I just think the wording is significant. So in Revelation 19, it says this, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure. Uh, ESV. Yeah. And so it's a beautiful picture of the bride. 
Um, it's 35 years ago that Rachel and I got married. And my daughter is getting married this October. I've already married two boys, but now this is a whole different thing of marrying a daughter off. And I'm not even allowed to see her the wedding gown because she wants it to be a surprise to the groom as well as the dads. And so I know when I see her for the first time coming down the aisle, I will be bawling and things like that. But this splendor of being clothed, and this is what he describes as us as the church. And he's preparing us. Another one is the household, Ephesians. Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No longer strangers. You belong as part of this household, this family. And then on to Romans. Romans 12, talking about the body of Christ. Again, a very familiar verse. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are, are we, but one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. When I read that, I had to read it again. Individually members of one another. It's not just joining in in fellowship with Christ. It's this unity of joining with each other as brothers and sisters. And then lastly, a building in 1 Peter. Four through six. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are, are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So another metaphor of a building of many stones put together and the foundation of the saints that came before us and we are being placed on those, but the significance of the cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself where everything is anchored to and stable and strong. And so, again, these metaphors, and there are many others, gives us these different aspects and vantage points of describing how God created and sustained um, this church that you and I are belonging to. So let's go on. The next part is just talking about maybe the marks of the church, distinguishing marks between a true church and a false church. And it goes back to understanding a faith and a practice uh, doctrines and conduct. And I want to read you just a very statement from Osberg Confession of, of 1530, and it says this. This confession defines the church 
as a congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. And those sum up so much if those are done. And then John Calvin puts an exclamation point and adds a few more words, and he says this, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there, and it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists. So if these things are done and done well and done purely and done rightly, it's, it's a marking of what the church is and what the church is supposed to do. Now, even in Charlotte here, where there's a thousand so-called churches, um, not all the churches really kind of take certain things as seriously or as carefully or accurately as maybe we would. Um, with the right preaching of the word or observing these ordinances. And the one, kind of the most clearest glaring of those that they call a church and some would call a cult, that even by changing one word can change and make a big difference. That if I were to read their text and it says Jesus is a God, and in my scripture it says Jesus is God, is that a difference or not? There's a big difference. And can you see the ripple effects through the rest of systematic theology when you start to change things like that? It changes everything. And so it is significant to be able to handle the Word of God with accuracy and to be very careful with it and allowing the Holy Spirit to use wisdom and discernment as He illuminates understanding of Scripture itself. And then a church that is willing to see the significance of the ordinances and do them just as described in Scripture and not vary it for whatever reasons. And Rachel will talk a little bit more about that next week. Because there are churches, in a sense, who really don't understand what it really symbolizes and represents, and they will minimize and sometimes just skip over it. It's not important. That's, to be that's alarming and that should be a concern if you were to bump into something like that. So even just to carry these on, this kind of theme with these other two words, the next slide talks about the purity and the unity. And so there's literature that talks about the true church, true believers together, but even in that, there's a range of kind of how they, they conduct themselves um, with teachings and how they live life. And so it's called more pure or less pure. And I know it sounds very subjective, but sometimes if we have the objective word, then we can kind of make some of these conclusions. Um, so even like was mentioned, Rachel and Tammy are at this theological conference where they are purposely bringing up concerns in theology to bring about clarity of truth. So there's no vagueness, there's no fuzziness, there's no wishy-washy about it so that we can stand on something that's firm in various topics of doctrine. Because um, again, some are a little wishy-washy in their understanding and teaching and preaching. 
So therefore, we do want to be able to conform to God's revealed will for the church. And throughout the Scripture, when you look at all the epistles' letters and the letters that are written in Revelation and things like that, these apostles that wrote these letters, they didn't, they didn't whitewash anything. They addressed doctrines and conduct where people were led astray and kind of doing this and kind of doing that. And these letters were meant to bring them back into a very narrow way of what God intended for individuals and groupings of people to live a certain way that reflect Him. So, hopefully as we individually and corporately learn what it really means to yield and submit and surrender to the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us, then that's what God will do in sanctifying and this process of purifying us into the likeness of his son. So I won't read it now, but Ephesians 5 talks about some of this sanctifying process that God does. To move on to the second part of unity, the unity of the church, it really is about the degree of freedom from the division among true Christians. And how many times throughout life we've already heard of so many um, situations where there, there are church splits over this or that. And when you equate that to family and of marriage and oneness, it's, it's, it's in a sense the same as like the separation and divorce and the ripple effects that that can cause on a family. And we've all bumped into different storylines of like that, and that's what kind of happens with this church family when this split happens and the devastation that it does to people along the way is, is significant. And, and God grieves because that's not the way he wants or designs and, and desires for his family to be. Romans, uh, I'm just going to read one, Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So when you think about what we are doing in this gathering to come together in, in harmony, in, in unity, and oneness, that when we do it and allow the Holy Spirit to do it, it's, it, it, it's this sweet smell of aroma in the nostrils of God. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a place of worship that he can delight in. But when we don't, he can grieve that. There's a sadness to it. And so, again, I think this represents, us doing it together represents the very image of God, the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and the relationship that they have. He wants us to resemble that, reflect that. The icon 
And I'll close with this. Um, I've had the privilege of being part of a, a men's uh, retreat. A couple of us guys get together on a quarterly basis. For about eight years now, we've been doing this. And my friend who facilitates it brings a piece of artwork for us to kind of contemplate. And one time he brought this painting, an icon, and an icon is a piece of artwork that in times when people were illiterate and could not read scripture for themselves, they can only hear it from the priest reading or teaching from it. So the church commissioned an artist, and through a collaborative effort, they came up with an artwork that would represent theological concepts and, and themes within this painting so that they would be taught and then every time the people would look, there would be a, a, a physical reminder of the truths of Scripture. It, it's Scripture in a painting form. Now, I won't go through all the significance of this particular called the Trinity, of the symbolizing of who they are and the colors and the, that. But I just want you to observe just one thing, that the Trinity, three persons in one God had three, in that painting is sitting around a square table, four sides. But the way it's pictured and painted, it's really made for the, the looker, the viewer, to step into the painting. It draws you into the fourth side of the table and representing the fellowship of the Trinity. And through all this, he has been emphasizing over and over again that what he has done for us is to allow us to join in the fellowship with him. But all the scripture we've also read is that we're joining in him with each other as well, both one and the same. And so he wants us to have this kononia, this fellowship with him, but let's do it together as brothers and sisters in this family of God, an environment of love and acceptance and belonging. So when you understand the church, you understand more of God, you understand what he is doing, and why we do this as a gathering of true believers in Jesus Christ. And I'll just end with this one quote, and we're done. This is from your textbook. In uniting us with Christ, the Spirit also creates a new community we call the church. The church, as though saved by God's grace and united with Christ by God's Spirit, becomes the embodiment of the gospel in the world. God's gospel creates the church. And you and I are part of this wonderful thing called the church. And I hope this brings encouragement um, that these verses represent you. So let me close in a word of prayer and you get to your small groups. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this time to look at these few passages that represent this special entity called the church that you have designed and created and allowed us to participate in because it draws us closer to you and it draws us closer to other true believers in you as our brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, to really understand and participate in a willing way um, part of this special gift that you've given to us. So I pray for this evening and the small groups and the conversations that all return back to you for your honor and glory. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.